I invite you, um, if you brought a Bible with you or uh, use it on some kind of smartphone, to go to Colossians chapter 3, where we'll be spending our time this morning. How great the love of God. What a phenomenal song. I love uh, the little refrain in there that says that it's never tiring and never failing. Aren't we proud? And aren't we just overwhelmed with that grace to us? Uh, Some of us who are weary and discouraged this morning, maybe walking through a very difficult season of life. What fuel for the spiritual fight to know that God, uh, as the psalmist reminds us, that he never sleeps and he never slumbers and his ear is not deaf to our cry. And that is so encouraging to me. And in the same vein, what a great picture of sacrificial love, as Jason referenced earlier, that we see in our moms. I was thinking today of moms, even moms who don't know the Lord, um, typically just in their character are uh, self-sacrificing. They give up many hours of uh, sleep and uh, large years of their life um, to bear and to care for children. Um, but also just the tenderness in mom. I know even now, if I get really sick, um, I, want, I want to be close to mom, wherever, wherever mom is, because it's just, you know, she will just kind of pour it on you. Um, Ashley, my wife, just kind of says, tough it up, Luke, get over it. No, she does. Well, she does kind of. She does kind of. <laughs> she's got this, in, you know, this incredible, like, threshold of pain, and I, like, get a splinter, and, like, my life is ending almost, so I probably need to toughen up a little bit. Uh, our uh, title today is Leveraging Your Legacy. And so I want to talk about that. One, on uh, Family Dedication Day, that we're always thinking about where our life is headed. And we're always thinking about the things we're investing into our kids, into our neighbors, into our coworkers. All of us are investing something, and we want a return on investment. Um, any good investment uh, banker would tell you that or advisor would tell you, you you want a good return on investment. And there, the Bible says, is no greater return on investment than investing your life and leveraging your life and setting the trajectory of your life towards eternal things. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit um, today. Would you pray with me as we kind of prepare our hearts for that? Father, I pray um, and humble ourselves and myself before you, knowing that nothing I say Um, could change anyone's life. But Father, your spirit, as you speak to us, and Holy Spirit, I pray you would illuminate the face of Jesus, that we would see him, and that we would turn from these lesser idols that tend to capture so much of our time and our affection, and we would turn from those things and turn towards you. And Father, above all, that our kids and uh, the younger generation um, coming behind us would see that great affection that we have for you, that this is just not a game we play or a religion that we're a part of, but uh, truly a relationship that has captured us and changed us forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was thinking about this idea of leveraging your legacy, and I thought I had a picture, but I, I forgot it at home. This week, I was working at my dad's uh, house. My dad bought the house he grew up in when his parents passed away, and um, there's this fenced-in, probably an acre in the backside that, uh, of the house that no one really goes in. It's just, you know, grown up and all kind of, my, my grandfather was an antique collector. And there's just tons of metal and just crazy things. So we're in the process of cleaning it out and seeing if anything's valuable back there. While I was doing that, I found, like, uh, the plate that is supposed to go on the, I guess, the, the, uh, the tombstone of uh, my great-great-grandfather, his name was Jesse Powell. And it's kind of eerie to see that in the backyard. 
Best I can tell, the, the, you know, his, uh, he was buried somewhere else um, and then moved here and his wife, you know, wanted to have, you know, his plate put next to her grave and somebody dropped the ball on that because it's still in the backyard <laughs> or, or she's buried back there. I can't figure it out. Either one of them are kind of freaking me out. Um, but it was, it was also kind of neat to see that. Uh, my middle name is Powell after him. Uh, Jesse Powell was his name and my name, of course, Luke Powell. And then I named my son uh, Hudson Powell. And uh, so this thing's in this name. And you read through the book of Ecclesiastes and it talks about this idea of legacy and this idea of a name that most of us, just two generations removed, I know Jesse's name. I know he was my great-great-grandfather, but I don't know really anything else about him. I don't know if he loved the Lord. I, I don't know if he was a hard worker. I don't know if he had great integrity or, or care. I don't know any of those things. I really just know his name. And for that reason, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says, listen, no one's probably going to remember you in just two generations. But you know the things that are going to last is the investment that you do put into people. And they won't probably credit it back to you two generations from now or three generations from now. But hopefully these seeds that you plant in their life will just continue to develop. I used that illustration a couple of weeks ago. You know, you look at a little acorn and it just, there's just not much to it. It's just simple and it's little and it's something that squirrels collect, just a little acorn. But in that acorn is so much power. A huge oak tree can grow from it and then it produces seeds. And even from that, I mean, you could fill a whole continent with oak trees from this little thing. And the same thing is the, the trajectory of our lives. When we begin to invest truth and integrity and character in the people's lives, especially our kids' lives, those things return, our return on investment in those is guaranteed to us. And so I want to look at that a little bit. The truth and the reality is that every life leaves a legacy. That's not an option. The question is, what type of legacy do we want to leave? As I was a youth pastor for 15 years, I always talked to the parents of teenagers of asking them to think about the driveway when your kid is 18 and leaving your house and going to college, what, what kind of man, young man or young woman are you sending out? Think about that as you continue to raise and shepherd the heart of even your teenagers. And it's the same question I'm asking us this morning. Think about what we're leaving behind. Think about the seeds that we're planting in our kids or in our grandkids or even our neighbors or people, young people that we have influence over. Truth is, we're, right now we're working on, we're building the legacy that we're going to leave. And when we look back over the first 13 chapters of Luke that we've been in for the past uh, year and a half, we see that Jesus called his disciples, right? The legacy that he's calling them to is one of being a world changer, of changing the world, of bringing this new kingdom and that's everything he talked about. His Sermon on the Mount was, you know, you want to change the world. There's just countercultural idea to it. You've got to lose your life to gain your life. If you want to get rich, then be crazy generous and get rich in things that, you know, even end up into the next life. And this was the message of the kingdom. Now, I'm not sure where Christianity kind of veered this off-ramp to begin to find Christianity as a set of moral imperatives def defined by what we do on Sundays, but rather... It should be defined as what our lives are lived for. His call to the early disciples and to us even today is so much greater than just what we do on a Sunday. It's to a life overflowing. Isn't that what he said? A life of greatness and adventure and ushering, into a, ushering in a kingdom that had been overtaken by evil. He called his disciples to live lives of consequence. Just hearing that, doesn't that stir up something in you? Doesn't that desire echo in your own life? 
I'm going to focus in this passage in Colossians 3 where um, Paul exhorts us to lift our eyes up to heaven. Really three parts. The need, why it's important. The nature, what it really is. And the practice, how exactly do we do this? The first, why it's important. Look at this uh, passage with me in uh, Colossians chapter 3. That Jason read earlier. I want to read it again and I'm going to read it a few times. I want this to kind of sink in. I don't want this to kind of just pass over our heads. This is Paul giving us the secret to write this Christian life. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a great call that Paul is asking us to be a part of, that's echoing the call of Christ even to us, um, to, to be a world changer. In order to do that is to lift our eyes up. We see Paul saying this, we see Jesus saying this, that we were made for this. Just a few months ago, Ellie, uh, Ellie is my, uh, is my five-year-old, and for those of you who don't know, she's the one that's just... Uh, just princesses and flowers, and she just loves all things. So we visited grandfather, uh, her grandfather, my father-in-law last week. He lives in the, the middle of the woods in Arcadia. And uh, somehow she comes home with this water bottle full of bullfrogs, like little bitty baby bullfrogs. That still, you know baby bullfrogs make a noise. Like we're, we're like, and she loves them things. And so we're coming home, and I tell Ellie, Ellie, when we get home, we're going to have to let those bullfrogs out. They're going to die in that water bottle complete meltdown right there in the car it's like but maybe they won't we can keep them talk to your mom about that um ellie is this sensitive just lover of all things and nature of everything a couple uh, months ago she came to me um doing some kind of karate move in her uh you know cinderella dress and she said hi ya, dad are you gonna help me restore the middle kingdom and i was like what you do not hear those things from Ellie. She's not restoring middle kingdoms. You know, she's, you know, loving, you know, animals to, uh, to things. And that's, I looked at her and I said, what? And I said, what are you? And she says, uh, I'm a princess ninja. Um, she had been watching Mulan, one of, the, one of the Disney things, and she was trying to restore the middle kingdom. Just the very things. And you think about this, if, especially with you that have boys... That's just like wired in them. They want to conquer the mountain. They want their lives to mean something, right? They, they want to fight for freedom. It's just kind of woven into us that we want to live a life of consequence. People don't dream about growing up and being couch potatoes with Cheeto crumbs all over them. That's not, our souls, our souls thirst for greatness, for our lives to count for something great. I know it's true for me. I want my life to count for something we didn't come here to start this church, and we don't have teams that show up every morning at 7.30, 7.45 to unload and set up all of this stuff just because we want the ordinary life. No, we want our life to count for something great, and we want to invite you to be a part of that very same thing. The good news is this morning that Jesus offers us both to live a life that means something, to live out a story that has great meaning. Jesus always called his followers to this. He told them that they would be the salt of the earth, the very light of the world. And Paul echoed those ideas here, calling us to be, calling the church to be pillars of light who push back the darkness, ambassadors of Christ who extend the kingdom of light 
to spend our lives investing in a legacy that impacts eternity when people don't even know who we are, that they don't even know what we stood for, that they find a gravestone somewhere that's got our name etched on it. They might not know us, but some of the seeds that we planted in our 50, 60, 70 years, we're still producing huge oak trees of truth that we're providing fruit for many generations to come. This is the invitation. The need, why it's important, because we were wired for this. We are still here for this. For those of us who are believers, God has never, ever, ever called us just to live this comfortable, mundane, ordinary life where we seek to just find comfort everywhere that we can. And not that comfort's a bad thing, but sometimes we get so comfortable that we ignore or we just diminish the call of God on our life to risk great things for him. And certainly that is what the disciples did. That is what the early church did. And that is the call of God even to us now to live a life of salt and light. I want to look at this other passage, just a few verses before this in Colossians 2. And Paul kind of sets the stage for this of telling us why it's important to leave this kind of legacy. It's what he says in verse 6. He's talking to believers. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Don't let you receiving Christ Jesus the Lord, he's saying here, just be a religious experience that happened on a Sunday, that happened when you were a little kid. No, his exhortation to us is to walk in him. And this is a sermon in itself in this, in this verse. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. You don't see anything about in that verse about mundane Christianity, about isolating yourself from risk. No, we should be rooted and built up in him. I love that image of just deep roots of always maturing, we're always being built up and we're established in the faith just as you were taught. That's the need. We were made for that very thing, to walk in him, to converse with the creator of the universe through the person of Christ, through the spirit that's within us. This is why we are here. That's the need, to walk in him. Now let's look at the nature. So we understand the need, but what does this really look like? Back to our passage He says in chapter 3 and verse 1, what does it look like? It looks like people who are seeking the things that are above. Maybe you've heard it said that that person is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. And I think that my grandfather probably said that about me as I was daydreaming in the corner about, you know, whatever was going on. But it's almost become a bad thing in our culture to be heavenly minded. Now, Paul would argue against that. He would argue that the people who are most heavenly minded do the most earthly good. We use cliches or idioms like, man, that guy, is, his head's always in the clouds to be a negative thing. But in our culture, it's a much more beneficial thing to talk about how down to earth someone is. Man, just down to earth people, those are good people. He's got boots on the ground. Those people are good. They're the salt of the earth, we would say, about people. But Paul is saying, no, I know what people might mean by that. But Paul is saying that the most heavenly-minded people do the most earthly good. What does this look like? It looks like people whose eyes are continually focused on Jesus. It looks like a group of believers who are always weighing the eternal consequences of every step and every action. It's revealed through how we deal with people and how we forgive people who wronged us and how we have a righteous anger towards injustice and oppression in, in, in our world. Tim Keller 
A pastor and author up in New York says it this way, Christians should live as if they've died and gone to heaven and then come back. Can you imagine seeing the glories of heaven? Can you imagine being, you know, just affirmed in your heart that everything that you've placed your faith in was so real that you could touch it and then coming back? You know, every great story has, you know, this hero that grows up in this uh, mundane environment and then he has this radical experience where he sees this vision or he gets bitten by a spider or, you know, he turns into a ninja turtle or something, right? And, and then they come back to the normal life, right? And now, now they're not afraid of anything because they've had, this, they've had this experience that has radically changed them and they see through this different set of lenses. Everything in the world is seen. They're the brave ones that every, they call rally everyone and get the best out of people. You know, they're the ones that slay the dragons. It's that kind of thing. And what Paul is saying, that Christians really are the same thing. That we've had this radical exchange where we've taken off the identity of our flesh and sinfulness and shame. And now we are in Christ Jesus. That we've seen heaven. That we've seen what eternity is going to look like. That we've got the very marching orders from Jesus himself validated through the resurrection. And we are being sent out as his missionaries in this world. That's what it looks like. That's the nature of it. Twice Paul tells us in this passage... To seek things above in verse 1, and then to set your mind on things above verse 2. Christians are people who have their imaginations captured by the greatest life of consequence, by the greatest life of legacy, that being Jesus. And to understand the gospel is to understand that you are caught up in this great love story with these incredible realities. And to the degree that we understand this, we will move about with freedom and with power. He starts out with this little phrase, if then, that points back to the passage we read in two of that we're alive together with Christ. Now there's two parts to really understanding this. First, there's something you have to know, and second, there's something you have to do. To live this kind of life of consequence, there's first something you have to know, and then something you have to do. Here's what you have to know. You have to be convinced that you have been, that you have died with Christ and then been raised with Christ. This is the essence of being a Christian. The essence of being a Christian is not just that I'm imitating Christ or listening to Christ or even obeying Christ. All those are important things. But they aren't the main thing. The main thing is to know this, to realize this, that you are actually, you might underline it or highlight it, that you are in Christ. Look how many times it says that. Seek things that are above where Christ is. And he's seated at the right hand. Set our minds on things that are above, not on the earth. And this is verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is a powerful phrase, verse here, verse 4. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, that you are actually in Christ. That's the main thing we've got to realize. Maybe you would ask, man, what does that even mean, Luke, that I'm in Christ? That everything that is actually true of Christ, for those of us in this room that are believers, is legally true of you. You died. That's what it says. You died. God treats you as if you are free from all of your guilt and shame that comes from sin. Why? Because you died. How? Because Christ died and you are in Christ. But not just that we died... Not just free from the shame and guilt of sin, but you are now alive with him. 
You see that part in the verse where it says that Christ is seated at the right hand? That is, you know, talk from, you know, the, the majestic kings and queens. Maybe you've seen the movies where the king and the queen are always elevated way up above the common people. And you would come in and view the king and queen or the emperor who was over Rome at the time that this was written. Everybody understood this. That you would try to gain an ear with them. And maybe you'd be invited to the very room that they were in, this great hall. And maybe, just maybe, they would invite you to step in front of them. But to be called to sit beside them was a place of intimacy and authority. It was a place of intimacy. And that's what Paul is even saying of us. He says if we're in Christ and we're invited to sit at God's right hand, it means that God is extending to you a place of honor and intimacy that you can speak right into the king's ear from this level. You can look at him face to face. You don't have to go through three other people to get to God. And so is true of us even right now. In your darkest moments or in your best moments, you do not have to go through myself or someone else to get to him. You can pray to him even now. You can speak right into the king's ear from this level. Look at him face to face. Again, this is not of your own. This is because you are in Christ. On your own, we couldn't even get into the same building. We couldn't even get into the castle per se. But because we're in Christ, we come with him. God treats you as if you've lived the life the son had lived and died the death the son had died. As if you made the sacrifices, as if you lived such a beautiful life of purity and honor. So what does that mean? To live this kind of life, to leave this kind of legacy means that your life is hidden in him. I love that word. Your life is hidden in him. Don't you see that this is where freedom and power comes from? I don't know if any of you are watching the uh, Bible series AD. It's just, it's a beautiful picture of the early church, of them understanding this, of not being fearful in front of those that could take their lives because their life meant nothing in and of itself. They were not worried in and of their own life. What could, what could they do to them? Because their life was hidden in Christ. This is where freedom and power comes from. If your life is hidden in him, with him in heaven, then the worst thing that could happen on this earth, Paul would later say, is just light and momentary affliction. One of the saints said, of maybe the most difficult life that you had ever lived when you get to heaven and you look back will just be like a a night in a bad hotel room. That is the glory that is coming for us. This is what you have to know. You have to know that Christ really was, really did die and really was raised from the dead. And I don't want to belabor this point, but we're in a very religious society of people who say, I just want spiritual power. And I really can't come to grips with all this jargon in the New Testament about died and raised. And I, I, just, I, just, I just don't want to do, deal with any of that. But I want to come here because it makes me feel better and because I want to have my conscience kind of cleared and I want spiritual power. But you can't get that. You're just playing religious games unless you know this. Not just in your head, but in your heart. And that doesn't mean that it's, you're getting rid of all kind of doubt. All of us kind of struggles with this, you know, doubt and faith uh, wrestling with each other as we live in this world and as we look towards the next. But this is the thing you have to know, that Christ really was killed, was raised from the dead, and he offers to you life with him. That's what you have to know. Here's what you have to do. This is the practice. We ask this question, how do we live a life like this? How do we really live a life like this? We see this. We see Jesus offering us this life that's overflowing and abundant. But how do we, in the mundane of our life, of going to work, 
in dealing with very sinful people and ourselves being a sinful person and we're in you know, we married a sinful person and we got little sinner kids that live with us. I mean, this is just kind of where we're at, right? How do, how do we live a life like this? And I think this is, it's really simple. It's, it's not simplistic, but it is really simple as far as what it's supposed to say here. Paul says, here's how you live like this. You continue to lift your eyes. You set your minds on the things above. You see how he says it negatively and positively? He says, don't set your things here on the earth, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are uh, on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then this last part, when Christ, who is your life, appears. To say it negatively, Paul is literally saying, the Greek translation here, is stop putting your mind and heart on earthly things. This is what the Christians were doing. They were putting their mind and heart on earthly things. And Paul says, if you really want to live this victorious Christian life, if you really want to leave a legacy, if you really want to plant the seed that's going to continue to bloom long after, right, you're, you're out of here, if you want to live that kind of life, you've got to stop putting your mind on the things that are here. Now, we live in a very materialistic culture that we think, you know, the best things in life are the next rung of the corporate ladder, the bigger bank accounts, the accumulation of stuff, if we could just get more stuff. And it's not that the stuff is bad, stuff is good. It's we make them the object of our affection. That's what Paul is saying to the early church. is certainly what he's saying to us. Like, be careful because materialism will get you by the throat. Be careful because... Being thought well of or being famous or having power, always being in control. Those are the things that will get you by the throat. And those are the things the world lives for. They understand that. Paul's saying, but not for the believer. Stop, he says. Stop focusing on the things that are here. But instead, focus on Christ who is your life. I love that phrase in verse 4. When Christ who is your life. To set your mind or heart on something is to make it your life. Maybe this is a good diagnostic question for us to see what our minds and hearts are really set on. And we need to know this if we're going to fight this great fight of faith because it's going to be a fight that's going to wage war with us until the day that we pass on. What things or people or relationships in your life, if you were to lose them, would make you think that you didn't have a life left? What are the things that you hold so close to you? And they're not bad things. They're normally good things. They're gifts even from God. But instead of worshiping the God, the creator, we begin to worship the created things. And this is so subtle. Man, this happens in my heart all the time as I was praying through this and even asked myself that question. So many relationships and things begin to creep in that if I lost those things, I would feel like I didn't even have a life left. We got to look at those. We got to know what they are. Good things, even great things, we're to be thankful for them, but we can't worship them. Then he says it the positive way. Hey, stop looking and focusing on the things that are on the earth that are going to pass away, but instead, set your mind on things above. Let me just tell you in my own life, here's how I know. When my mind, when my focus, when my heart is set on the things that are on the earth, Instead of the things that are above. Anger. Worry. And frustration. 
when I see myself overcome with worry about the financial situation that I'm in, you know what I've reveals to me? That I have begun to set my mind on the things that are here. And it's not bad to be concerned with those things. To be concerned is fine, but to be fearful of them, to be alarmed is okay, but to be worried about them, to be upset is normal, but to let those things grow into frustration and anger and bitterness, that is revealing to me that something else has my life. Something else has got me by the throat. And when I began to worry and be frustrated and be overly anger or bitter about something, if there's a relationship gone wrong, and I just, I just harbor bitterness, you know what I know? I know that I've set my mind on things here and not things that are above. When we see those things, we know that something else has our life, that something that is the good thing has become the great thing, has become the best thing, and it's never meant to hold that kind of weight. I have to look at these things that cause my emotions to go up and down and remind myself that these things aren't my life. Psalms chapter 1 talks about the meditation of just thinking through and praying through these very things, this inner dialogue, when we have to side with God sometimes against ourself and what our heart thinks that it wants most. We have to look at those things. We have to look at those relationships. We have to look at those materialistic things and even speak to them maybe as it's helpful to me and remind myself, listen, Covenant Church is not my life. Now, I've been guilty of when Covenant Church is doing well because we've got so much invested here that I'm doing good and I feel good about things. That's why Mondays is like the hardest day for a pastor because everything is kind of revealed of how it's going by Sunday. Like what is going, it's not the right, it's not right at all, but it is what happens. And I have to remind myself that Covenant Church is not my life. In relationships, when someone stabs me in the back and it hurts, and it does hurt, Christ says we should forgive them. And when I can't forgive them, I know again that my life is centered around something that is not Christ. Something else has our life. We have to remind ourselves as Christians that my life is not hidden in these things. Hey, that's a good thing. But you aren't the best thing. I don't need these things to have life and joy. Christ is my life and joy. And this is kind of the end to bring all this together. This is the beauty of the gospel. That Christ was condemned so that we could be accepted. Christ was thrown out so that we could be brought in. Christ was killed so that we could have real life in him. And I want to remind us that this is where freedom and joy ultimately come from. This is where a life of legacy is birthed. I didn't, I didn't uh, ask... Uh, uh, Melissa, but she put it on Facebook, so I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Melissa Richardson's in here. She put something on Facebook that she missed, uh, she missed a little event at her uh, kid's uh, bombs day out, and she was overcome with uh, just this thought of failure because of it. And I was thinking of this and studying this, and she kind of goes on in this long post to kind of just the inner working of her own repentance. And I love that that's on Facebook for us to see and, and learn But you know what? That is so true. And it just, it felt like it was a good culmination from where we're headed. Her thoughts, even in the little post, was that being the perfect mom is not my life, in other words. That's not the legacy that she wants to leave. That's not the legacy that any of us should want to leave, that we're the perfect mom or the perfect dad or the perfect friend, because we'll never, ever measure up to that. No, hopefully our legacy is that our kids would see Christ in us, that they would see us fail and they would see us ask for forgiveness. They would see us respond wrongly in situations and they would also see us come before God and repent of those things. 
right in front of them so they don't see a perfect dad or a perfect mom. No, they see us broken, humble, wanting them to see Jesus. I was thinking about this, right? As we are in Christ and the fruits of the Spirit should be seen in us, love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness. You know what I was also aware of? As I'm aware of my own faults as a father and as a husband and as a friend. That put togetherness is nowhere on the list of fruits of the Spirit. It's just not. Put togetherness is not perfection. It's not one on, on the list. Having everything together is not one on the list. Always having the right answer, not even on the list. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. But you know what are on the list? Love. Even when people around you are difficult to love and joy. Even when you walk through very difficult circumstances in peace. Even when you go through seasons of transition where you don't know how things are going to work out or what the right next move is. That as we focus on Christ, as the psalmist would say, as we lift our eyes to the hills. Because that's where Christ is. Not in the hills, but he's the maker of the hills. That's what it means to be in Christ. And that's how we live a great life of that's how we live a great life, and that's how we leave a great legacy. So what I want to do is just pause for a moment. And I want us to deal with these own spiritual realities in our own heart. Let me ask you this. What is your mind focused on? I love how Brad Crenshaw, who gave a little uh, talk last week at our, at our uh, family rhythm, he encouraged us just to go home and ask our kids. There's something really honest about a 7- and 8-year-old. They'll just tell you. Just ask them, you know, what, is, what does dad live his life for? What is the most important thing to mom? And just see what they say. That's through their eyes. What's most important to you is they're going to come back. Well, we've got to have, a, you know, a perfect life. We've got, we got to always have everything clean and pretty. We've got to be shiny people. Is that what's most important to mom and dad? Or could they, in their honesty of a seven-year-old or five-year-old, four-year-old, just say, you know what? My daddy and mommy, man, they love Jesus. That's what's most important. And that's the legacy that they're leaving to me. Maybe we should just ask them. Maybe you just ask your heart. Maybe even behind what even people can see. What's most important to you? Is it the materialistic things? Is it always having stuff or the comfort of a larger bank account? Is it maybe the health or the, the status that you've earned? Everybody looks to you and respects you. Paul would remind us, hey, stop looking at the things that are on the earth and focus on Christ, who is our life. I'm going to pray for us, invite the band up, and they're going to come and sing. And I want this to uh, be a time that we just really evaluate what we're investing in. It's a great time for repentance, confessing just right where you're at. Confess to the Lord what you've been living your life for. The greatest thing about the gospel is forgiveness is free. It's not earned. And you can go to him for that. I'm going to pray. Right before I pray, I'm going to dismiss our parents to go get their little ones if they haven't done that already. And um, the band's going to sing, and Jason's going to come and exhort us a little bit more, and then we're going to dedicate our kids. Would you join me in prayer as we think through these things and we really focus on the spiritual? What are we, what are we living our life for? Father, thank you for the free gift of grace that necessarily didn't cost us anything but cost Christ everything. 
and pray for us. Uh, many of us from different backgrounds and different denominations, we've come together to honor uh, these babies being uh, dedicated and these parents dedicating the trajectory of their life to invest into these kids, these spiritual truths. But Father, we're not really here just for that, that every time we've gathered, it's no mistake we're here, that you're speaking to us, and I pray we could hear your voice. Or what's creeping up in our life? What's grabbing our life by the throat? What smaller or lesser gods are you calling us to repent of to set our minds on you? Father, I pray that we could have our minds and imaginations captured by you once more. Father, even as I think of little Ellie, the princess ninja, Father, that you would restore in us your image of wanting to live a life of consequence, a life that means something. To remind us of certainly cost that comes with that. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for forgiveness. Pray those that are on the outside looking in, even this morning, Father, would turn to you. It's in your great and powerful name that we pray. Amen.